I wanted to go over again a little bit of what we did last week as I, I feel like we, we left some points on the table in terms of how I, I mentioned the general concept that we're on page 94, okay? And in Vyatsiv in Nahon, I mentioned the general concept that there are 16 peers of phrases happening over here. And the first one of each of these phrases refers to Hashem's manifestation when it's very open. And the second one refers to a time when Hashem's, Hashem's glory is a little bit hidden from us. And I want to go through them in a little bit more detail as Rav Schwab does, because I think it's really powerful. Okay. So the first one is true and certain. Okay. So Rav Schwab says, the Yatsiv, right, is the Aramaic translation of MS. Okay. The Yatsiv is not Hebrew. Okay? MS is. The Yatsiv is not. The Yatsiv is Aramaic. Aramaic is very closely related to Hebrew. When did what he wants to say is like this, the, the concept of saying truth and basically, <clears throat> and basically really just saying truth again, except this time in Aramaic, right? So what, what are you trying to express? Well, Aramaic has always been the language that we used as Jews when we were no longer in the land of Israel, okay? So by definition, Aramaic represents a time when Hashem's presence is not as openly with us, not as openly manifested with us as it was when we were in the land of Israel, okay? So MS is when Hashem is with us, Yatsiv is when there's a period of what we call Hester Panin, when Hashem's face is hidden from us. And that's why we use Aramaic to convey that. Binachon Vikayam, established and enduring. Okay. Nachon means like correct and obviously correct, right? Something which is clear and apparent. You just take one look and you're like, Nachon, right? When Israeli tells you Nachon, you pat yourself on the back. It doesn't happen that often. So Vikayam meaning enduring or long-lasting. Once again, kaya means it lasts. It's here. It's not going anywhere. So what it means is that even when things are not nachon, in other words, they're not clearly apparently good. They're not clearly apparently the presence of Hashem in this world. We still say the kaya. Hashem is still with us, even in the time of festival. Then we say the yashar v'neman. What does the yashar v'neman mean? It means fear and faithful, right? Fear as an F-A-I-R. You know, my kids sometimes complain that I say all those words exactly the same pronunciation. And also with the fear, I say them all the same pronunciation. Um, yeah, so I say fear. Uh, you guys say fear or something like that, I don't know. So fear and faithful, right? So the same thing applies once again. Yashar means when we see the straightness of Hashem. And yashar means to be straight, right? Everything is straight, yashar. Right, so when I see the fearness of Hashem in front of my eyes, then that's that's amazing, that's fantastic, that's great. Right, when when bad people are treated badly and when good people are treated in a good way, that's great. Then we see the hand of Hashem in this world. But sometimes that's not what's happening in a time of Hester Panun, when Hashem's face is hidden. That's not what's happening. And sometimes we do wonder, well, how is it going to be that bad things are happening in this world on like global scales, actually speaking. So what we're saying over here is that which was yashar, very apparently straight in the time of Giloi Shechina, of the revel uh, open revelation of Hashem's presence, is ne'eman. It's still faithfully accepted by us during times of Hester. We say, ve'ahov ve'chaviv. Ahov means beloved. Chaviv means cherished. Or, um, yeah, cherished. It's a similar idea. What is why? There is something that we are obligated to do which is we are obligated to love Hashem. It's one of the 13, it's not one of the 13, I'm sorry, it's one of the 613 commandments. According to the Rambam, it is mitzvah number three when he's listing the mitzvot, 613. Mitzvah number three is to love Hashem. And that's the mitzvah, as we know, 
But via half the ace, right at the beginning of Shema, what we say is via half the ace, Hashem Alokecha, and you shall love Hashem your God. It's a mitzvah to love God. There's a certain level of Ahavas Hashem that we have when everything is open and apparent. When you have this feeling that everything really comes from Hashem and you get a better understanding of what Hashem is. And then you recognize, and yet, all that being said, Hashem created me as an individual to be in this world, to do something. When you actually have a, a sense of the gravity and awe of what Hashem is, which is what you have when there is a sense of the presence of Hashem. And then you say, little old me, I'm here for a reason. Then you have a, a tremendous Ahavas Hashem, because we know that what causes us to love each other, not infatuation. Infatuation is not based on love. Infatuation is based on testosterone and things of that nature, right? So it, love is when someone does something for you. When someone does something for you, you love them. And when they do something for you, they love you. It creates that love. So if you recognize everything that Hashem does for you and you recognize everything that Hashem is, then it, incredible love that we should have for Hashem, which is only really possible when there is an open sense of Hashem. So now we have the beloved and cherished. So beloved is referring to a great love that you have for Hashem. And it's a lot easier to develop that love when there's the open manifestation of Hashem's love for us and recognition of everything that Hashem is, which is only really possible in Matan Torah. I shouldn't say that, which is more possible in Matan Torah when Hashem comes and reveals himself to the Jewish people. Before Hashem reveals himself to the Jewish people, what did Moshe Rabbeinu tell the Jews? Stay away from the mountain lest you come too close and die. Right? Now, why would we be coming closer? The answer is there is an incredible desire to immerse yourself in that thing. Okay. I remember the first time I saw um, Yosemite. I remember uh, I was, it was uh, 20 years ago. And I went up to, we went straight. We didn't go to the valley first. Maybe it was foggy in the morning. I don't remember. But we, we did not really see Yosemite until I was at a, I think, a cathedral point or glacier point. I don't remember which lookout. But it was just like it, it, the expanse was just something, it was almost unfathomable. And it just, you almost want to like throw yourself into the void, like actually be one with the void, so to speak, right? It's just like this incredible feeling of this is absolutely mind-blowing and you want to immerse yourself in that, right? So they wanted to connect to Hashem and they wanted to get closer and they were willing to even touch the mountain just to get as close as they possibly can to a spiritual presence. And Moshe says, no, you can't get any closer. If you get touched the mountain, you will die. Okay? So that's the yearning of the Jewish people to become close to Hashem. Now, that's about Ahava. That's about love. But in times of Hester Panin, in times when Hashem's presence is not as openly manifested, then we're not going to see Hashem openly. And we're not going to have that sense of overwhelming love because it's not so clear. We're not feeling the love back either. And we're not seeing the presence of Hashem in an open way. But it's still Chavit. It's still something that we cherish. What do we cherish? We cherish the collective memory of when Hashem does reveal himself to all. Okay, so we're continuing in this pattern of setting up that the first word in the phrase is a reflection of when Hashem is openly manifested. Second word in the phrase is when Hashem is not. Okay, we're up to delightful and pleasant. Right? Nechamad, delightful, is certainly a more powerful phrase, certainly a more powerful word then na'im, pleasant. Why? Because when there is a giloy shrina, when there's open presence of Hashem felt, then we have a desire, a deep desire, and a delight in Hashem. But in Hester Punnett time, the hidden face of Hashem, 
then once again, we're on the level of na'im, only being sweet or pleasant. means, Enora is like an awesome, and the adir is very powerful. When it's Gilo when this presence of Hashem clearly felt, then we have Nora, we have feelings of awe and trepidation, you're shaking, right? As it says in the Torah, that when Jewish people recognized that the God's presence was manifesting himself on the mountain, they were actually shuddering, they were trembling. But in the time of Hester Panim, it's not exactly the same thing. In the time of Hester Panim, then we describe it only as powerful. Now, here's the next one, very interesting one, very important idea, and something that people grapple with. I have uh, conversations with students from Berkeley about this all the time. It says, umusukan, right? Umutukan, umikubal. What does that mean? It means, mikutukan means it is correct. Umikubal means it is accepted. So Schwab says, beautifully, in the times of giloy china, in the times when Hashem's presence is clearly felt, then the words of the Torah are actually evident. And they're not just evident, they're evident from the text itself. If one is in the presence of God, their understanding of the Torah is exponentially greater than during the time of Hester Panik, when Hashem's presence is removed from the world. And the reason for that is that learning Torah is not like other disciplines. It is not a purely intellectual exercise. It is intellectual. It is effort, absolutely. But it also is divine gift to have an understanding of what the Torah is trying to convey to us. So when there's Giloy of the Shechina, then we understand the truths of the Torah from the actual text itself. Smart man, Dave, on page 381. So during these times, then you can clearly see that every halacha is actually in the words and the letters of the Torah. So the great, the closer we are to Hashem, the closer we can actually see misukan. We see that these words are in the Torah itself. When Moshe came, he did not even need to show us the words in the Torah. It wasn't necessary. Moshe just said, this is what Hashem said. You didn't need to look at the Torah. Then as we get further and further removed, they were able to look at the words of the Torah and through looking at the words derived laws. In our times, we can't do that. Right? Open up a chumash and try to figure out what the chumash is telling you for halacha. Like how you're supposed to live your life. It's very, very difficult to figure that out. However, we still have mikubal. We still have it as accepted. In other words, we accept that the sages have transmitted faithfully and with great fidelity to the tradition. So misukan means when you are able to see on your own level that this is true. And this is the halacha. Mikubal means we have accepted. Ultimately, we always recognize the importance of saying that the halachic process as distilled throughout the ages and the way the halacha is practiced by the majority, vast majority of halachically observant Jews is because this is what Hashem wants us to do. It's a very important point. I want to reiterate that. I get asked this question often. You know, technically, the Jerusalem Talmud says that this is what we should be doing. And, uh, and the Rambam, Maimonides, seem to pass like the Jerusalem Talmud. But yet, the practice today is not like that. And my answer always is, we don't really care about doing an academic understanding of, well, what should the halacha look like based on an understanding of previous generations? For 600 years, this is how Jews live their lives. Then that's it. That's how we live our life, right? We need to recognize limitations on our intellect and the importance of relying on those who came before us, okay? 
So when something is done by everyone, then that is accepted. Now, some of you might be wondering, and if you're not wondering, you should be wondering, okay, well, you look around America and the vast majority of Jews in America are living their lives a certain way. I right? mentioned vast majority, but the majority certainly of Jews in America living their life a certain way. We know what intermarriage is rampant. Okay, if Jews are all living their lives a certain way, then maybe indeed that's acceptable. Because I just said, if everybody's doing something a certain way, that's acceptable. But of course, that, that would be a fallacy. What I mean to say is that a Jew who is purporting to live their life according to a halachic process and basing their halachic decisions in life on those who came before them, if that community is following a certain tradition, then we are okay following that tradition. It is mikubal. It is accepted by us that that is correct. Okay? And it says, the next phrase, next peer. So what is this peer? It says, it is good, the tov, good and beautiful. Yafet, right? Or pretty. So, yafet, I'm sorry, tov means good. Means good that there's, no, there's nothing to talk about. This is clearly good. Yafet means not that it is good, not that it's objectively good. Yafet is more of a subjective type of perspective, right? So what does it mean? What it means is that something which is dependent on our subjective acceptance of our understanding of a specific category of things as being good, that we call yafa. Something which is clearly objectively good, we call tov. So when everything is good clearly, then we say tov. When everything is only good based on our acceptance and recognition and realization that ultimately this is for the best, then we call that just Right, this thing to us, this matter, right, that Hashem, and Ani Hashem Alekechem is good. It's accepted by us forever and ever. Whether we are in a time of Gilushchina, of, of divine revelation and clear manifestation of God in this world, or whether we are in a time of Hashem's presence to be hidden from us. Okay, so let me say, Emma's, um, okay, fine. That, that's kind of what I wanted to go back to. The rest of it we've done already, but I wanted to just go into those, into those phrases a little bit better. So now let's go on to Ezra Sabusi. Um, wait, we didn't do Alav Yishonim, I'm sorry. Okay, so we're on page 95, and we're up to the second part. And we read, upon the earlier and upon later generations, this affirmation is good and enduring forever, both upon the earlier generations and upon the later generations. This idea is still completely existing, right? What's the affirmation that we refer to? The affirmation that Hashem is the same Hashem who took us out of Egypt, right? He is, that is the definition of Hashem, is the one being whose existence is absolutely imperative and absolutely independently imperative for the continued existence of the world. It is good and enduring forever, true and faithful, right? So the repetition is very, very powerful, right? And we're repeating the concepts that we've been discussing previously. So it is true, MS, true, the emuna. And we also have faith. In other words, something can be true when you understand it on your own understanding. Something is, we accept on faith when we don't understand it necessarily on our own, but we understand it because this is the tradition. What do I mean by that? If you're actually there at the revelation at Mount Sinai and somebody says to you, is there a God who is Ani Hashem Alokechem, who is the I am Hashem, your God, who is completely independent? If you were standing there at our Sinai, then we would all walk away saying, absolutely, no doubt about it. We can't do that because we weren't there. I mean, our souls were there, but we don't have a memory. We don't have a memory of that. But what we can do is we can accept that based on emuna, based on faith that the tradition is accurate. 
So we can't say emes, but we could say emunim. It is true that you are Hashem, our God, and the God of our forefathers, our king and the king of our forefathers, right? So we are trying to relate ourselves back to the forefathers. Because this is something which is so critical about Judaism. It's something that I found really appeals to people who have a, a respect for authority more than, let's say, uh, you know, anarchists or counterculture people today where they don't have respect for authority. But we try to tie ourselves back to those who came before us. And we try to say, we believe in this God. And this God today is not any different than the God who revealed himself to the forefathers as one and the same. Our Redeemer, the Redeemer of our forefathers. Our Molder, the Rock of our salvation. Our Liberator and our Rescuer. This has ever been your name. There is no God but you. We are transitioning now. From where we had been saying Shema, we were accepting upon ourselves the yoke of heaven, so to speak. We accepted upon ourselves that there is only one God. And we accepted upon ourselves to love God with everything that we have. We accepted upon ourselves that there is reward and consequence for our actions. And then we started discussing that God is the same God who took us out of Egypt. And now we're transitioning from not just the same God who took us out of Egypt, but the God who was ultimately to redeem us even after we've finished describing that right now we're in a terrible period of Kastrapanim. We're in a period where Hashem's presence is hidden. But that same Hashem who took us out of Egypt will one day come and take us out of this as well. We believe that with complete faith. The prophet tells us that the miracles that Hashem did at Egypt, which were great, certainly very great miracles, they will be pale. They will pale in comparison when Hashem comes back to take us out of our exile this time. That's something that we believe and we hold dear at all. Okay, so now we continue, and I want to I wanna share my source sheet with you. We're going to continue, and we start Ezra Sabasayim on page 96-97. The helper of our forefathers are you. Who's the helper? Who, what, what do we call our forefathers? So the Talmud teaches, sages taught in Abraisa, one may only call three people patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not Jacob's children. One may only call four people matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. So when we say that Hashem is the helper of our forefathers, what is that a reference to? And Hashem is the one who helped Abraham and Yitzchak and Yaakov through all of their trials, through all of their diff difficulties in life. They all went through terrible difficulties, right? Abraham was tested 10 times. Yitzchak, of course, had the terrible incident where his own father tries to sacrifice him, right? Yitzchak then gets married does not have any children for 20 years. Then his wife gets pregnant and he has a son who gives him nothing but, but uh, you know, devastation and nothing but sadness in his relationship with her. Then we have Yaakov, of course, who goes through probably the most awful in terms of what he had to deal with in his life, right? So those are the patriarchs. Now we have to recognize you were the Ezra Sabasini. You, God, were the helper of our forefathers throughout all their time in throughout all their time in, in and the difficulties that they're traveling with. Okay, so let me say like this. Savior for their, oh, sorry, are you alone forever? Shield and savior for their children after them in every generation. Now, there's something interesting. What do you need to say for their children after them in every generation? Why don't you just say for their children, right? Wouldn't that be enough to just say, you are the savior and shield and redeemer for their children? Why do you need to say for their children after them? 
that's understood. If you save children and you already said that you redeem them and you save them, then of course that's understood that you need to save for their children after them. So Rav Shrab wants to say, I think a beautiful idea. When we talk about the special nature of the relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people and the special relationship where he saves them and exhibits himself in a way that he does not for other people, that's only true when the children follow in the footsteps of their fathers. When they are when they are following in the same path. And how do we see this? So if you look at the Torah, we have source number two over here. Source number two are verses when right after Avram has a bris milah, Avram has a circumcision, and he's sitting in the heat of the day on the third day, and the angels come to him. And then we have the famous incident where the Lord, or Hashem, is now going to say, I cannot hide from Abraham the fact that I'm going to destroy Sodom. And what does Hashem say? Let's look at these three sukkim, a very important sukkim in the Torah and in general for life. Now the Lord had said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham is to become a great and populous nation, and all the nations of the earth are to bless themselves by him. For I have singled him out, that he may instruct his children and his posterity to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is just and right in order that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. In other words, why does Hashem say that Abraham is going to become a great and populous nation? Because Abraham will instruct his children to do what is right and just. Okay? So when we talk about having a special relationship with Hashem that will distinguish the Jewish people from all other nations as clearly having a special unique relationship with Hashem, it is necessary for us to act in the ways of Abraham by doing what is just and right. Okay? So when we do what is just and right, then we will be worthy of be, having Hashem be our shield and savior in every generation. But only those children who are after the forefathers, in other words, who follow in their footsteps, will have this merit. Yeah, makes sense? Okay, no debate. Okay, boring. Okay, so, so let's continue. The Pasuk says like this, at the zenith of the universe is your dwelling and your justice and your righteousness extend to the ends of the earth. Right, Hashem is from one end of the earth to the other. Praiseworthy is the person who obeys your commandments and takes to his heart your teaching and your word. Okay, what does this mean? Praiseworthy is the person who listens to your Torah. What exactly do we mean by this? So. Rav Schwab wants to say, what we mean is, this concept, it's a, a, a reference to a verse in Psalms. And this verse in Psalms is expounded beautifully in the Gemara in Avodah Zarah. Gemara asks, is, uh, one second, I skipped the actual Pasuk. Pasuk says, Asheya Ish. Here, okay. Pasuk says, Ashrei ish yare es Hashem. Praiseworthy or happy is the one, fortunate is the one who fears Hashem. And the Gemara then asks, is that to say happy is the man, but not happy is the woman? Why is it necessary for the verse to emphasize that it's speaking of a man, right? So for those of you who thought that it's only recently that people started asking, why is there always a reference to men and not the woman, right? We're being, women are not included, right? So the Gemara already asks this question. Why do we only emphasize the man and not just say praiseworthy are people, okay? If Amram says that, Rav says, the verse applies to both men and women. It is teaching, happy is one who repents when he is still a man before he becomes elderly and his strength dwindles. 
Okay. So what are we trying to say over here? What we're saying is like this. Praiseworthy is the person who obeys your commandments and listens to your word before, before he becomes too old. That is even more praiseworthy than the person who waits until, until it's later and he no longer has the same strength. Then it's not such a big deal that he decides to do teshuva, that he repents. Because when you do teshuva when you're old and you don't have the strength, you don't have the energy to do the wrong thing, that's not as big of a deal. Obviously, it's easier easier to do teshuva then because you don't have the same desires anymore. But to do teshuva when you have the full capacity to do whatever you want still, right? By the way, when I say old, I mean old. I don't mean I don't mean old. I mean old, right? So when that if you're younger than that and you're and you're doing teshuva, that that's fantastic. That's even better. So if you look at the Hebrew for a second, I want to show you something really cool. Ashrei ish sheyishma lemitzvosacha. Praiseworthy is the man who will listen to your commandments, not sheshama lemitzvosacha who listens. Or Shoshamea, the mitzvah who listens to your commandments, but rather Sheyishma, right? The future tense, he will listen to it. It's not praiseworthy. Praiseworthy is when you are listening, not when you will listen. What's the idea? Rav Shwab says it's very simple. Once you make that commitment to changing your ways, you're already praiseworthy. Once you make that commitment, I'm going to listen to the Torah, you're already praiseworthy. You're already a different person. Okay? So let's continue. Oh, so here's the next point. Another, another great point. It says like this. He takes to his heart your teaching and your word. Let's look at that in Hebrew for a second. Say, And your Torah and your words he puts on his heart. Okay. Now, what's going on over here? If he puts your Torah on his heart, then obviously he puts your words <coughs> on his heart. When we say words, do we mean like a special private communication? Because we typically call that prophecy. Most of us are not worthy of prophecy. And today, no one is worthy of prophecy. No one's capable of prophecy, I should say. So what do we mean when we say the, he takes Hashem's Torah and he takes Hashem's word and puts it on his heart? What does that even mean? So Schwab wants to say, once again, beautiful idea. You look in the Torah on our source now, source number four. You have the terrible or frightening or sad story of Nadav and Abihu. Aaron's sons, Nadav and Abihu, took their fire pan, put fire in it, and laid incense on it. And they offered before the Lord alien fire, which he had not enjoined upon them. Then fire came forth from the Lord and consumed them. Thus they died at the instance of the Lord. Then Moshe said to Aaron, This is what the Lord meant when he said, through those near to me, I show myself holy and gain glory before the older people. And Aaron was silent. Now, there's a big problem with this. When did the Lord say that to Moshe? That he will, those, through those near me, he will show himself glory, holy and gain glory. Where does he say that? We don't see him saying that. So Rashi explains, when did he say this? He said, and there I will be met by the children of Israel. And in it, the tabernacle, the Mishkan, shall be sanctified by my glory, Bikfodi, with my glory. Don't read it as Bikfodi, with my glory, but rather read Bimichubadai, right? With my honored ones. So what Moshe said is, I understood 
that when Hashem said Bikvodi with my glory, it really meant through those who honor me. That is our act. That is how the Beit HaMikdash, the, the Mishkan, will be sanctified. So that's what Moshe, how, how Moshe knew the Mishkan was meant to be sanctified through those who died. The Ramban says a little bit differently. The Ramban, Nachman ben Nachman, says a little differently. It says, when we say that, when did Hashem speak, right? When did Hashem ever say to Moshe that, he, that this thing will happen? It refers to his decrees, his thought, and the manner of his ways. And the term speaking is used with reference to all these in humans. What does this mean? What this means is, does Hashem speak to me? Does Hashem speak to Alana? Does Hashem speak to Cheryl, David? Talk to Barbara, Debbie? Does Hashem speak to us? Right? If one of you were to tell me Hashem is speaking to you, I would say, let's take you in for an evaluation. Okay? But if you were to, today I was in Trader Joe's and, and someone started screaming and nobody was turning around. Nobody, nobody was turning around. And the cashier is like, did I just hear someone screaming or is it in my head? And I was like, no, no, you heard it. Just no one was turning around. But yes, so does Hashem speak to us? The answer is Hashem does speak to us. The Ramban says he does, clearly. How does Hashem speak to us? His decrees, the manner of his ways. In other words, when things happen to us in our lives, we have to recognize this is Hashem speaking to you. Okay? That does not mean to say, and I literally just did the Gemara talking about this. When something bad happens to your friend, lo Aleinu, it shouldn't happen. When something bad happens, you go over to them and say, this is God speaking to you. He's sending you a message. That's not the reaction that we have. The reaction that we have is to validate and to try to make people feel better and try to console them for their loss. But at an individual level, once we're past our grief, we need to recognize these things that are happening are happening as a message from Hashem to us. Okay? Literally, Hashem is speaking to you. You're not going to hear the voice but you will hear the message. And the question is, what do you do with this? The person who is ready to take to his heart the word of Hashem, that is someone who is praiseworthy. Why? Because if you take the word of Hashem to your heart, then you will change your ways. Hashem sent a special message just for you, right? Just for me. And once he sent that message, I listened right away. Well, when you listen to that message, you're a praiseworthy person because you're living your life on the right plane and you'll take that message and change your life because of that message. Okay? So, okay. True, you are the master for your people. And actually, I, I want to stop this point right here. I want to stop right before we get up to the true because I wanted to share something. I think about this week's Parsha and about what we've been learning this morning. So this week's Parsha is Parsha's Truma, Right? So we speak about all about Hashem asking Jewish people to make donations for the sake of building the Mishkan, right? Sake of building the tabernacle. Now, there's one line of thought in the commentary that this all takes place actually after the Chet Ego, after the sin with the golden cat. In other words, it's out of order. Okay? So what does that mean? Why does it take place after the sin of the golden cat? The way we understand it is the fact that we require a central location, and only in that central location would Hashem manifest himself. That's actually not an advantage, it's actually a disadvantage. In the ideal world, the way Hashem created it, Hashem would have manifested himself to us as individuals. We would not require 
this gathering together of all the Jewish people in specific places to achieve a level of holiness to allow for Hashem to reveal himself. In the ideal world, Hashem would reveal himself to all of us on an individual level in our own homes. After the Chet Egal, after the sin of the golden calf, we were no longer at such a high level. And therefore, Hashem was only able to reveal himself in a way that was in a mass location where all the Jewish people come together and there Hashem can reveal himself. Why is that? The reason why Hashem does not reveal himself in an open fashion to all people at all times is because if Hashem would reveal himself to all people at all times, then we would no longer have such a high level of bechira. We would no longer have such a high level of choice and free will. Because of course we would do the right thing if we had a sense of Hashem, a palpable sense of Hashem's presence with us at all times. Of course we would do the right thing. So why does Hashem not reveal himself to us? Because we need to have an evenly balanced scale of choosing to do good or choosing to do bad. Before the Jewish people had the sin with the golden calf, they were on such a high level that to have Hashem's presence with them at any moment would not change their free will. What do I mean by that? I just got finished saying that if we have Hashem's presence with us, we don't really have free will, right? What's important to recognize is everybody has their own free will. Everybody has their own challenges. And what challenges one person is not necessarily the same thing that challenges someone else. So when the people were on such a high level, what was their free will consisting of? It was consisting of very small things because they were almost always going to do the right thing. There were very few circumstances in which they could sin. But that was what their free will consisted of. So for Hashem to reveal himself to them on an individual level, that would not have an impact on their ability to exercise free will, because their free will was anyways pretty constrained. When we sinned with the golden calf, we had removed ourselves from such a high level. So now for Hashem to reveal himself to us on the individual basis, as was the original plan, then that would actually impede and impact our level of free will. And therefore, it was no longer possible. What's interesting is, like I said last night, it says in the Torah, Ve'asuli mikdash, and they shall build for me a mikdash, Ve'shachanti b'socham, and I will implant myself in you. Like b'socham, not b'soch ha-mishkan, or b'soch ha-mikdash, not inside of the mikdash or inside of the mishkan, but rather b'socham, in you. Right? As Hashem can implant himself in us. An incredible idea. I said last night also, that after the destruction of the temple, no longer does Hashem reveal himself in a very open way in the base of Mikdash. Now he is found in the places where we learn Torah and the places where we dive into Hashem. So on the one hand, we say this, and this is clearly a very large step down. Because there's no more Giloi Shechina. There's no more open revelation of Hashem's presence. And that is something that we mourn for. That is what we call Hasterpanim the hiding of Hashem's face. But that being said, the very thing that is the hiding of Hashem's face also allows us, gives us allowance to build our own space on a personal level, on a communal level, but not on an entire national level. And in that own space, during Hester Pandem, we also can connect with Hashem on the highest of levels. So we need to realize that, we need to appreciate that, that when you go to a show, when you go to a, an actual show, when you go to a place where people are learning Torah on a true level of Torah, right? Then that's actually the place where Hashem is found today. So there is a Hesterpan, but we're almost on some level back to an earlier stage where it does not require everyone coming together for Hashem for reveal himself. 
even on a small scale in your local shul, your local place of learning Torah, that is also possible for Hashem to reveal himself for us. So yes, we're in Hester Panim now, but on some level, we actually connected on a greater, more personal, more private relationship with Hashem. Okay, that's what I wanted to share with you guys today. Great job. Hello.